This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. I'm speaking with Christina Collins, KD8OXT, and uh, Christina is a double E graduate student at Case Western Reserve University. Good morning, Christine. Christina. Good morning. I meant to call yep. you Christina. Oh, that's all right. They're, uh, they're pretty close. <laughs> Now, you've been involved in a number of things regarding amateur radio, but in particular, you've been involved with Hamsai. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, Hamsai is a uh, a collective of ham radio operators and space scientists. And the goal of it is to bring those two groups together because there are things that amateur radio operators know about space weather empirically uh, and have known for a long time. The ham radio community is this really great resource for being able to do data collection because there's ham radio operators everywhere and also for being able to analyze signals at scale. And meanwhile, the scientific community uh, in space science, and especially people who are looking at the ionosphere, that'll be the, uh, the focus of the upcoming workshop, are trying to gather data about this very undersampled part of the geospace system. So it's really a, a perfect moment for everyone to work together. And uh, as a bonus, you know, when you learn more about what the uh, the ionosphere is doing around you, you know more about where you're going to get good DX. You mentioned the workshop. When is that coming up? That is going to be this March. It will be the, uh, I want to say it's the 19th and 20th. Is this a virtual online workshop? This one will be, yes. Normally they are uh, in person, but of course, since the world ended, they are virtual. And the advantage of that is that they're now free to attend when uh, when doing the virtual component. Can anyone attend? Yes, absolutely. Christina, one thing I wanted to talk about today as well was the work you've been doing. I think it is called the Eclipse Festival of Frequency Measurement. And there was one in uh, December that took place. Can you describe that? This is sort of a, uh, a thing where it's worth taking a step back and talking about one of the big HAMSI flagship projects called the Personal Space Weather Station. Um, the Eclipse Festivals have been pilot experiments for that project. And um, so what that is, you know, it's basically just what it says on the tin, right? It's a, a personal weather station like the kind you would have for weather underground, except that instead of measuring uh, you know, terrestrial weather events that measure space weather events. And this is an NSF-supported project, and we've been uh, working on two different versions of it. We call them the tangerine and the grape. The tangerine is being produced by the folks at the Tucson Amateur Packet Radio Network. And uh, the grape is the Case Western part of it. So the purpose of the grape is to listen for time standard stations and to make measurements of the Doppler shift of time standard stations. And it's going to be the low-cost version. And the tangerine will have a, a, a wideband receiver, and you'll be able to plug magnetometers into it. And uh, it will have the capacity for extended uh, instrumentation in the future. But the grape, we're currently, you know, 
we have some prototypes running in the the grape 1.0 and those are out now so we're performing these uh these doppler measurements of wwv um and the eclipse festivals and the original festival frequency measurement which was um held for the centennial of wwv are our pilot experiments you know we can take a uh a day or a week of data from people using their own ham rigs at home. And then we can get a sense of what we need to collect with our, uh, with our stations. The, the first one was really the WWV Festival of Frequency Measurement. That was an interesting experiment. That was um, October 1st of 2019, which had nothing particularly special about that day except that it was the centennial of WWV receiving its call sign. We had a uh, an open call to ham radio operators to make recordings using FL Digi. And if you go into FL Digi and you go into uh, the different modes, there's a mode called frequency analysis mode. It's a little different than it used to be partly because of this experiment because I complained about the timestamps and uh, uh, W1HKJ, who um, handles the software for that, was willing to accept a patch that was written by John N8OBJ here at Case. So we had people do 24 hours of recording with FL Digi. And that frequency analysis mode is particularly geared toward the ARRL frequency measuring test, which if you've ever done that one, there's somebody who has a NIST traceable frequency standard and they key down in a particular part of the spectrum. And then you try your best to figure out, you know, what frequency they were transmitting on. But uh, usually when you're doing the FMT, you know, all of this um, change in the path length that causes a Doppler shift, you know, the ionosphere goes up and your path length gets a little bit longer, which means that your frequency drops a little and vice versa. The ionosphere goes down, your path length gets shorter and your frequency rises because the wave fronts get kind of scrunched. Yes. Um, yep. So that's uh, that sort of measurement. Um gets in your way in the FMT, you know, that, that particular, it's a noise component in that case. But for us, you know, if you have your WWV transmits at 10.00000, you know, megahertz, and then you have a GPS DO, hopefully at your station, you can do it actually uh, without one if you've got a decent local oscillator, but a GPS DO is real helpful. And uh, so you listen to WWV, you subtract that frequency component out. And what had been, you know, a noise component in your FMT becomes your quantity that you're measuring. So we can take this tool of amateur radio and apply it quite directly to a scientific measurement. And Doppler measurements like these are very old. These are as old as, you know, ionospheric physics practically. Um, what's different now is that the instrumentation is more available. Everybody can email each other. And we've all got lots and lots of little tiny computers. So it's the right time for everybody to start doing more data collection and uh, just sampling the system more um, so that we can get a sense of variability on different space and time scales. So that was the first event. We did a um, we put together a paper on that, which is going through the revision process now. Then around June, you know, I had been kind of hoping to do something with the December eclipse. And then, of course, the, the pandemic hit, you know. The trick of an eclipse for doing measurements in ionospheric science 
you know, the ionosphere is, uh, you can think of it sort of as, and this is one of those, all metaphors are wrong, but some are useful things. Um, <laughs> it has uh, all of this fluctuation. It's sort of like a big invisible ocean, you know. And there are tides. Uh, there is daily variation. There's seasonal variation. And uh, this is the stuff that, you know, you are trying to characterize from a scientific perspective or from, you know, the perspective of ham radio. Like how many times, right, have you had that experience of trying to make that DX contact and you're watching the sun go down and then the propagation path disappears? Oh, yeah. You know, that that kind of thing. Right. So there's usually these very pronounced daily fluctuations that have to do with your sunrise and sunset times. And the cool thing about an eclipse is that it's like the closest we can get to a controlled experiment in space, you know, because it uh, it gives you the impact of darkness over that particular swath without the impacts of anything else. Plus, you know, they're cool to look at. They're ideal for citizen science. And uh, they're impossible to procrastinate on if you're trying to organize something around them. That's right. For us here at Case Western Club, Whiskey 8 Echo Delta Uniform, um, w8edu.wordpress.com, for those at a computer who are curious about seeing our adventures, we're looking forward to the eclipse in 2024 because we will be in perfect totality for that one. Or as we've been saying around here, we paid handsomely to ensure that Case Western would be in totality and MIT would not. Um <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so we've been looking forward to that one. And, uh, you know, there's like two eclipses a year. You know, we can we can do some eclipse science before that. We don't have to wait. Plus, it's good to practice. There's not there's not been very many eclipses over the um, the United States in the past century or so. And the first bit of uh, recent ham site, you know, eclipse science was in 2017 um, for, of course, the one that was that summer. Uh, Nathaniel Frisell, uh, W2NAF, who is the, the founder of HamSci, he's a professor at the University of Scranton. He and some of his colleagues put together the Solar Eclipse QSO party. And uh, the Solar Eclipse QSO party, if you participated in that one, essentially a, uh, a data collection where I think most of what he wound up using came out of the existing networks, which is to say RBN, WhisperNet, uh, all of which was correlated with the path of totality across the United States. And that was a very interesting thing, right? Because we know that we've had this set of records of RBN and WhisperNet, you know, collecting data for years and years. And there's, you know, uh, tens of thousands of RBN spots that you can go through and get data over a relatively short period of time. It turns out there's actually enough there, enough of these data points of there was a, a path from A to B on this particular frequency that you can sometimes catch traveling ionospheric disturbances, which are these waves that are caused by, uh, you know, forcing from above or below. Anyway, back to the, the June Eclipse Festival and the December Eclipse Festival. These were sort of ad hoc projects in a way. One of the things that I did was I took the, um, the protocols from the original Festival of Frequency Measurement, which is to say just use this mode in FL Digi. And for the June Eclipse Festival, I told people to do that but for the Chinese time standard station BPM. And I was initially aiming for stations that were near the path of totality. And then I got a, um, a message from the Dutch amateur radio press 
saying, you know, we'd like to cover this. I, I actually still am not sure where they heard about it. But in any case, um, so they they wrote me and uh, and I was like, I mean, sure. You know, they're like, do you need any Dutch stations? And I'm like, I don't not need Dutch stations. <laughs> <laughs> so they uh, they translated into Dutch and then we had, uh, you know, the, the English version, the Chinese version and the Dutch version. And uh, I wound up that first experiment with, let's see, I think that was 50 stations in 19 countries. We got every continent uh, except Antarctica for that one. And it was really nice getting to connect with all these people, first of all, you know, just to see all of the um, all of the folks that come out of the woodwork and are interested in helping with doing science. Um, and uh, I'm still working on their QSL cards for that one. Uh, but about the, the interesting thing about that particular experiment, and I covered this in a, a poster for the American Geophysical Union that's somewhere up on their uh, website and I think is, is open if anybody is curious to poke at it more. About a week before the, um, the actual experiment, we had a practice day, right? You know, because really when you get when it's all said and done for this particular type of data collection, it's a set and forget kind of thing. So you want to have a day where you can make a recording and ensure that everything that you have is set up well. When I had everybody send in these FLTG recordings, all of the data sets from Europe had this kind of like, the best way I can describe it is fringe on the graph. And what had happened was the, uh, the frequency estimation algorithm in FL Digi was essentially looking for the loudest DFT bin. And so it was hearing another time standard station that I hadn't known about, um, which was a, a station in Italy. That's actually, it's an experimental station. So um, it doesn't show up on the BIPM record of all of the different time stations. Uh, and the frequency analysis algorithm heard that, which was, you know, 20 megahertz below the 10 megahertz carrier or something. And it just jumps between the two of them like a dog with a bone. Oh. And so I'm looking at the ones from Europe. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do anything with this. And so what we started doing was I told everybody, hey, if you are able to, you know, I know I've been asking you for this tiny CSV file that's very easy to email back and forth. But if at all possible, do you think you could make massive wave recordings and then we'll just try to figure it out? And you know, this is one of the things about working with the ham community. They're all like, okay, sure. You know, so for um, for some considerable time after that, I was uh, was downloading all of these wave files from people. For the December eclipse, we were able to take all of these lessons learned from the June eclipse, you know, that probably we should be making recordings with like at least eight kilohertz of bandwidth. You know, we should be able to look at the sidebands later, all of this stuff, instead of just pulling a derived data product for this short-term experiment. That was one lesson, you know, so wave files instead of spreadsheets. Uh, then another lesson was do a longer period of recording time. So the December experiment lasted for a full week and people did not really tend to drop off that much. They really stuck around. Actually, even for the June one, I asked people for, you know, now that you've collected uh, three days of data for me, pretty please, could you collect two more? Because <laughs> I was realizing that I might need more control data. Really, a lot of people were were ex incredibly helpful about it. Um, the December experiment, we got 81 stations 
And I think that the the total count was 45 countries. That one, too, got six-continent participation, and a lot of people from June participated in that one as well. And the path of totality was uh, across southern South America, is that right? It was, yes, and I feel bad for the folks there because it was cloudy. Oh. (laughs) It was – I was watching the live stream in – NASA did a live stream, and I think theirs was like on a – in Argentina, I want to say, so I will. I think it was in Argentina, and um, they, yeah, you you watch the whole thing, and it's just cloudy the whole time, and it looked to be rather windy and rainy too. But um, that was a, a total eclipse, and the one across um, China had been a um, an annular eclipse. So I'm digging into the December data, which is all wave files, and so there's you know there's a lot more um, extraction. <laughs> Uh, for me to do. I'll be looking for signs of traveling ionospheric disturbances in the Doppler shift day-to-day. One of the things that's going to be interesting about the December data set is that, um, let's see, the eclipse was the 14th. I had people collect from the 9th through the 16th, and there was a geomagnetic storm that hit on the 10th. So, I hope that first day is a good control day. (laughs) Um, It it wasn't a particularly major geomagnetic storm, but, you know, as you know, we're uh, just beginning to come out of our solar minimum. And uh, everybody's excited to see any sign of life, you know. Um, So all of the space weather alert mailing lists, um, there's a particularly excellent one that – Pat Reif runs out of uh, Rice University, and I cannot remember her call sign right now, but it's on QRZ, and she's cool. She has a uh, an automated alert system, and so I got all of these emails from her system saying, you know, the, the KP index will be high. And then I got these emails uh, from her on the mailing lists explaining that among storms, this wasn't actually a huge deal. <laughs> And uh, but, you know, there there was some excitement. I think there was like an article in The Washington Post about it. You know, they were like, oh, my gosh, because after 11 years, people, I guess, forget that these are a thing that happens. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that there will be some signatures of that. That's going to be an event that I'm looking for. I'm going to be looking for other signals around 10 megahertz that were picked up by people because it's this, you know, it's a week long global snapshot of what you would hear if you turned on a radio around 10 megahertz. That's what my ultimate data set is. And it happens that there were some events that occurred during that time. You know, the storm was one, um, the eclipse was one. And then sort of in the middle of it, the uh, the Argentinian Navy turned their time standard station back on for the benefit of anybody who happened to be doing eclipse science, which I don't think actually had anything to do with me. So I don't know who else is doing projects, but there must be some other ones out there where people were looking at the uh, the 10 megahertz signal from their station, which, and I kid you not, the, the Argentinian time standard station call sign is LOL. And, <laughs> and the Brazilian time standard station call sign is PPE. So it's just a very 2020 time all around. Oh, yes. Um, so, but yeah, those are some of the ones there's, um, of course, WWV and WWVH. And then there's, uh, BPM is the Chinese standard station, which that is a good call sign. I gotta say. So 
Anyway, that's the uh, the brief summary of the eclipse experiments. We'll be looking soon for similar campaigns uh, that we can put together. One of the things I'm excited about, and um, you know, if you have an idea for one, please hop onto the Hamside page and post it as an abstract in that form because I'll see it. Um, I'm looking for ideas for data collection campaigns and scientific campaigns that can double as contests in the way that the solar eclipse QSO party did. Well, that's a good idea. Things where you can find, thank you, uh, things where you can find scientific objectives where you want to encourage certain things and then you add on a point system and, uh, and gamify it. And uh, we'll be focusing this year's workshop. They've always got a theme. Um, the first one was in Newark, New Jersey at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. And that was 2018. The theme was the 2017 eclipse. In uh, 2019, we held it here at Case. And the theme for that one um, was a lot of things about the personal space weather station. Then there was uh, last year where it went online. It was going to be at University of Scranton. It went online in the span of about a week. Um, that was the first online conference that I did when I, I had had Zoom meetings in the past, but only like, you know, 10 of them ever, right? And uh, so this was my first real foray into a Zoom conference was that particular conference, which is a year ago now, which feels weird to say. Oh. And that one was the, the focus was the Auroral Connection. There was a um, working with another citizen science group called Aurorasaurus where they have uh, they do citizen science observations of auroras in, um, in high northern latitudes. And so this year we wanted to sort of bring it to the, uh, the area where a lot of, you know, the Hamsai folks are physically. Like what are, the, what are the interesting things that can be seen in, uh, in space physics from your backyard? Sure. That's sort of where we're, where we're focusing next. And that'll hopefully be the, um, the ultimate destiny of the personal space weather station too, right? That it will help us develop this scientifically rigorous picture that hobbyists can connect with in very direct terms. Okay. Well, Christina, thank you very much. This has been extremely informative. And uh, we will uh, also, uh, in the uh, show notes, post again the link for the conference. Absolutely. Thanks very much. And uh, and 7-3. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time. <laughs>